0: The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by BowlinBranch.com, offering luxury bedding at affordable prices. Order right now, and they'll give you 20% off plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at BowlinBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com, and use the promo code CULTURE. And by Tracker, a coin-sized device that locates misplaced keys, wallets, bags, computers, anything in seconds make losing things a thing of the past. Get 40% off your first Tracker device by going to thetracker.com and using the promo code CULTURE. And by Care.com, the world's largest digital marketplace for finding and managing family care. Right now, you can save 30% off a Care.com premium membership and receive a $15 credit when you subscribe at care.com slash culture.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest, the Beautiful Ones edition. It's Wednesday, April 27th, 2016. On today's show, we will no doubt exhaust all superlatives in discussing the legacy of Prince. The genre and gender bending, the omni-talented, omni omni-American genius who is retrieved by eternity long before his time and long before we were ready, certainly. We will try to hold back tears in a discussion with Jodie Rosen. And then, looks, talent, a magnificent career. Life has seemingly handed Beyoncé everything, and she has given the world lemonade. We discuss... Her visual album, which premiered this past week on HBO, we discussed that as well with Jody. And then finally, The Girlfriend Experience is a provocative, low-affect exploration of commodified sex. It stars Riley Keough as a young woman putting herself through law school as a high-end escort. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi. And uh, June Thomas has uh, has, uh, agreed to fill in for Dana Stevens, who's on leave. June, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much.
1: And then, of course, Dana Stevens has agreed to come in. And <laughs> Is she in <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's, she's,
2: yes,
3: she's filling in for June?
1: Yes, she's feeling in for June. Dana's come in to talk about Prince Dana. Yes, so I, I,
0: more plan. like I insisted on coming in. I'm like the person who leaves, goodbye, goodbye forever, and then I forgot my keys Can I come
1: back. <laughs> yes. And uh, Jody, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Julia, before we tuck in, do we have any business?
3: Yeah. First, I should mention what our Slate Plus segment will be today. We're going to take the occasion of the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death to discuss his work, our favorite plays and our favorite lines from Shakespeare. And I guess while I'm explaining who's talking about Shakespeare, I might as well run down, if you'll have me, Steve, the crazy structure of this show. June Gamely volunteered to sub. Then we had all this musical calamity and hootenanny and Steve. Anyway, so here's what's going to happen. All five of us are going to talk about Prince. Dana will leave. The remaining four of us will talk about Beyonce. Jody will leave. The remaining three of us will talk about the girlfriend experience. Then, boom, everybody's back for endorsements. And, boom, everybody's back for Shakespeare. So it is a jam-packed show
1: today. Stay tuned. Boom. There we go. Julia Turner. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Julia Turner. All right, moving on. Prince Rogers Nelson, better known simply as Prince, of course, died this past week. I love the man. I loved his music. Jody, to get into the segment, I want to try something a little different. I want to give you a category, and I want you to give me prince's percentile rank in the history of pop music okay
4: okay singer uh top one percent songwriter top one percent or a little higher guitarist one percent top one percent live performer the best no there's no the best what percentile is that (laughs) exactly crafter of persona fashion plate impresario (laughs) Etc. One percent. You know, in baseball, Steve, what is it? They talk about a five-tool all-star. Prince was like, you know, the 15-tool all-star. He was, I mean, in in terms of sheer musical talent, he stands alone. He's the the most talented popular musician of all time ever, anywhere. Mm. Mm. Um, And, I mean, that isn't to say that there aren't others who equal him in all those categories, but nobody did so many things so well. If you Mm -hmm. think about the way he sang, um, his versatility as a vocalist, just to choose one example, right? He could, he sang like Prince, of course, but he could also sing like James Brown, gutturally, you know, rhythmically. He could belt out a rock lyric like John Lennon at his kind of hoarsest in his like primal scream mode, right? He could sing like a silken soul ballad like Al Green or... Or a have seen a throaty soul bowed like Teddy Pendergrass, I mean, what can we say he was he was the greatest, and the thing about him is that he um he he kind of seemed to encapsulate all the music, all of American popular music, like everything that came before him. Um, he sort of was the synthesis of it all, and then he added on extra stuff, so the one category we didn't mention was just innovator, right If you think mm, about exactly. his in his music, you hear echoes of everything, gospel, soul funk, rock and roll, Tin Pan Alley, you name it. He wrote songs like the Beatles. He had this incredible melodic gift, right? But he started on his career as a young man, right, in the late 70s. And he had the audacity to kind of wield these new machines, synthesizers and drum machines, and try and concoct uh, a fresh sound. Now, this sound, obviously those machines were kind of ascendant in various genres at that moment. But no one, to my mind, my ear, had properly figured out how to use synthesizers and drum machines. And, you know, he figured out how to make funk music that sounded super as funky as, like, a full-on, you know, Parliament Funkadelic band with a huge brass section and bass and guitar and everything with just using drum machines and synthesizers and the odd bit of guitar and bass. And the sound was extremely new and weird. So why don't we hear something from the Dirty Mind album, which is his third album and sort of his first full-on masterpiece. And this is a song... We're gonna to listen to Head, right? This is a song called Head, which is about it's not about heads. It's about <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you need to explain it, Judy. It's... <laughs>
1: I just remember when that, at my high school, when that record was contraband, right? Like you just couldn't believe, I mean, turning just briefly to subject matter, Jody, like who had made a record with songs, you know, explicitly about oral sex, you know, uh, the gender bending and the category busting of the music was just, it was just mind-blowing.
4: Right, yeah. You know, Prince drew on what was happening. For instance, we, we just lost David Bowie, right? So in glam mm-hmm. rock and things like that. But that wasn't happening in that in that way in black music. And so in that sense, he was really innovating inside of that genre. And, you know, Prince was very savvy about the marketplace and interested in positioning himself between genres to expand his audience. And, of course, he, you know, hovered between other categories. Part of what he was saying, if you think about the lyrics controversy, right? He's like, I'm not black or white. I'm not gay or straight. I'm
0: Something you'll never understand. Yeah, yeah. Since we since we chose a raunchy song for our very first clip, um, I just wanted to mention, and I think this is probably true for lots of people who like. I think like some of us in this room were teenagers or young, very young people when Prince sort of hit his peak. Is that to me? I mean, I started listening to him way before I was having any sex, and I think he had a way of making sexual pleasure sounds so, even the raunchiest act, like stealing a bride on her, on her wedding night, you know, or um, uh, the, the threesomes or incest that pop up in his music. He had this, because of his sense of humor about it, as a lyricist, he had this way of making the most raunchy sex acts seem so wholesome and clean and sort of loving, mm-hmm. right. and very, obviously very affirming of female pleasure too. And so I think it was, it was great to come of age dancing seductively to Prince songs when you had no idea what seduction was, because he was <laughs> such a teacher of seduction.
4: One hundred percent. And and I think that you hit on it with the point about female pleasure. I mean, that was really where he was coming from. Right. I mean, pardon the expression, but he was so to speak. Right. He wanted the woman to he was focused on the woman's orgasm, her pleasure, first and foremost. Right. And he was going to deliver it by hook or by crook, maybe literally. Right. And, and that's a, a lot different than what we hear today, largely in rock and hip hop and other genres, which seems to be all about, you know, conquest and the and kind of preening lover men who are more interested in themselves. They're, like, gazing at themselves in the overhead mirror and not at the woman, right? And Well, Prince was never about that.
3: Right. Well, even his raunchiest songs are romantic, achingly romantic. Yeah. And even... I feel like there are some modern... I mean, in general, modern pop music is very graphically sexual in a way that probably owes something to Prince. But, But I think even when there are songs about female pleasure, it's about the ability to give female pleasure as a thing that redounds positively to the man. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's, mm-hmm. th- it's not entirely about men getting off, but it's sort of about, like, I'm great because I'm good at this, whereas there was something sort of other-directed about Prince's lyrics. I also feel like—I was trying to think if this was true or not, so, so try it on and tell me what you think. For some reason, Prince's songs are the songs— that when you sing along to them, you feel like you're inhabiting this alternate persona. Like they they feel like they each have these stories. They're the songs that you want to sing along to on the dance floor and be like engaged in a pantomime colloquy with other dancers. Like they feel like they ask you to put yourself in them. Yeah. And I, 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 and then I was listening to Beyonce album, which we're discussing later today. And I was like, well, I guess it happens a little bit with Beyonce too. But there's there's something so... Specific and weird about his situations as opposed to just like generic bedroom, generic grunting and groaning. Like Raspberry Beret, very specific, strange song and very catchy and great. I
5: was working part-
4: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. He was a great songwriter. He's a great narrative songwriter. He was like a, a storyteller par excellence. And that. there'd
0: be twists in the stories, mm-hmm. right? Like, what's the oh, song yeah. where I a mean, threesome, another guy shows up in the bed? I can't remember. It's one of the big hits. You know, but there's sure, there's, or, there's something that unfolds that you wouldn't have expected. From right. The or, or
1: like Ballad of Dorothy Parker. It's I mean, what, what incredible, unbelievable right. narrative song.
5: Dorothy was a waitress on a promenade. She worked a night shift what a tall and fine. She got a lot of chips.
4: Right, that's from the Sign of the Times album. Or if we think about another song on that album, um, If I Was Your Girlfriend. <laughs> Um, what a masterpiece and also what a bizarre situation. So he, this is a situation where Prince is saying to, his, to a woman, if I was only your girlfriend, that mm-hmm. is to say, not your, not your lover per se, not that kind of girlfriend, but I was like, you know, your gal pal. Then when you were picking out your clothes to go hang out for the night, I could be in there with you consulting and watch you undress. in that way. It's like a new level of kink and intimacy, right? And then, of course, he takes it to the place where also, hey, we could have lesbian sex.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was a great quote right. that right. Some, one of his producers, somebody who had worked with him a lot, referred to him as a fancy lesbian.
4: <laughs> June, you have any insight on that? Do we, do you re- well, no, Actually, I'm interested what you how you read his sexual personae.
2: Right. Well, uh- it's interesting because I, you know, I'm older than most of the other queer people at Slate and so I wondered if it was just my experience you know because I do not have a recollection of going into gay dance clubs and Prince being played he was not played and I asked the other people who are younger they're like no not really where I heard Prince was at like lesbian fundraisers because lesbians love Prince especially Kiss if any song that says you don't have to be cool to be my lover the lesbians are all over that (laughs) (laughs) a little bit of co-optation or a little bit of assuming that queer people are into Prince because he was so bending, because especially toward the end of his life, he said some things that were not friendly to gay people. He didn't, you know, he was politically engaged. He did, you know, do things for Black Lives Matter, but he opposed same-sex marriage. And he certainly didn't do anything to help it. There is a there's a, a pull at the same time. Like, this is a guy who's, so, you know, I don't think of myself as particularly a Prince fan. And then I think, wait, I could sing, you know, 25 Dude, I songs. Have, I have
0: danced hard with you to Prince songs. In fact, with everyone everyone at this table, except, well, Steve is not at this table, but I don't think Steve gets out on the dance floor. But I mean, Prince is so <laughs> When in all Prince of plays, our Steve gets out right?
4: on the dance floor, surely. <laughs> i think those are good points one thing i want to i want to make sure that we don't miss is just the the uh, go to back to the music how just what a strange interesting um song crafter arranger producer he was if you think about Mm -hmm. a song like when doves cry which i I believe i wish chris malanthe was here (laughs) that's got to have been a number one hit i think that that was was. his first number one right okay that song has no bass
5: dig if you will the picture Me. Can you, my darling? Can you picture this dream? can, courtyard, an ocean of violets in bloom, animals strike curious poses.
4: I do think we should mention, though, Prince never stopped recording. Like, his... his The Prince Apocrypha, or, like, you know, his back catalogue of unreleased shit, is so voluminous, and I think that's great because we have so much to look forward to. But he... The, the recordings that he made even later in his life, you know, every once in a while, his, his albums were not uniformly great, but there'd always be some song that would just blow your mind on the later mm-hmm. records. One of his most touching ballads is on that Musicology album it's the last song on on the record called reflection and this is at this point in his life prince was kind of easing into middle age he was married and this is a song about love not really sex about love domesticity and about almost glimpsing his death off in the distance
5: two sevens together like time indefinite the glass before it falls without a frown can you turn up the stereo i wanna play you this old song it's about love
4: it's really like a beautiful kind of nocturne. He, the song ends with an image of him sitting on his stoop playing guitar, kind of gazing out at the passing cars. So that's a and, and it's an incredible piece of music with like which uses flutes and woodwinds in this sick way. The arrangements wild. Okay, but <laughs> oh man, sick, sick woodwinds, <laughs> sick woodwinds,
1: man, bring it.
4: Okay, but I want to. I want to. Okay, in in I think 1998 there was a there was a triple album of. Um, unreleased stuff or heavily bootleg stuff called Crystal Ball released. And in addition to those, the three albums on that triple album, Prince released a fourth (laughs) all acoustic, solo acoustic set of songs. I think there are 12 songs called The Truth, which were newly recorded songs. And there's a song on that record called Dion, which is just one of the most incredible songs I've ever heard. It's, it's, It's just, it's written like, you know, Cole Porter or something like the lyrics are great, witty, funny and it's just an an amazing example of the kind of thing that like he could step into the studio, this music would arrive in his mind, he'd go in there, whip it up and like three hours later you'd have this song
0: You know, his very last live show that he played was just a couple weeks ago. It was on April 14th in Atlanta. And uh, for a while, there was a a live recording of that circulating online. I think with Prince's legal team's usual talent, it's scrubbing all of his work off the Internet is now impossible to watch. But I had listened to the whole thing and just really, really regretted never having seen Prince live. Just that seductiveness and that power he had over audiences is really audible, even just, just with the audio, the the banter in between songs and so forth. And in particular, I just had this note when he sang, oh, like an old beloved. It was, um, how come you don't call me anymore, right? And he was doing this kind of call and response. I think it was in one of the three encores he played <laughs> at this show. And, uh, and the audience was kind of singing along because they love the song so much. And then there's a moment he says, ad- addressing the whole audience, you sing, but you don't tell me, i.e. you're not telling me why you don't call me anymore. Actually turning <laughs> mm-hmm. the entire audience at probably a stadium, right, into this intimate discourse with a, a spurning lover. And then a guy in the audience, a male voice, shouts out, you know why. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
4: Yeah, you know, those last live shows, that's another instance of what what Prince was up to. Okay, he was this incredible, you know, indefatigable live performer. Um, Often he would play these shows. I I saw him five times, I think. Yeah, five. And, And he would play an arena show. And then the thing was, could you find out what club he was playing at afterwards? Because he'd go and then, you know, at one in the morning, he'd go on in some club. And the club was supposed to be closed at two, but he'd be playing till 4.30. So, but on that last tour, it was just him alone at the piano, which he'd never done before, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, just another take on his songbook and, you know, him you know, flaunting his insane chops on piano. So he, it, he he had a lot more music in him. I think one of the reasons this is registered as such a shock is that, you know, he was still so lithe. He looked young. Mm-hmm. He was still trim and handsome and like you know he could still when when the mood struck like do a split on stage he was as vicious a live performer as ever i mean if you think back just a i guess maybe eight years ago to the super to the his performance his halftime performance at the super bowl that was an instance of his coming on just being like okay i'm anybody else who has ever played this done this gig or who will ever do it again Forget about it, you know, and he mm-hmm. he loved doing that he it you know I think personally he was a very generous man. There's been a lot of stories surfacing recently about his philanthropy about the fact that he gave away money and insisted on anonymity and no, no publicity for these efforts, so seemed like a lovely guy, basically in all respects, but he was a fierce, fierce competitor, and he wanted to be the best. He still wanted to be the best at this age, and he never you know resisted an opportunity to Show people up, <laughs> or to to <laughs> assert or prove the fact that like he was the he was the best and the baddest and the most unimpeachable and nobody could fuck with him.
1: And he was right. It's like how many people who treat themselves like God's gift are actually God's gift to humanity. And he really he really was. Jody, you'll remember this: the famous line from the Robert Christgau review of I think Dirty Mind, far as far back as 1980. gow ends his review by saying Mick Jagger should just fold up his penis and go home. Right and. Uh-huh. You know, he was everything. He really was. Forever, they're going to be great dance songs.
3: It's so true. I had that experience this weekend re listening to all my old Prince favorites and remembering one that I love that I haven't listened to in a long time that is like fairly mellow in the Prince pantheon, but is itself a great dance track, which is Pop Life. I myself just like bopping mm. around to pop life and having that be the song that stuck in my head, which is not the earwormiest or the one you <laughs> think of as the like, in the top 12 or top 20. But it just, it's, it's got this ineffable go to it. But I'm curious what songs the rest of you guys have been coming back to.
0: Well, we talked, you know, I actually mentioned one of my favorite Prince songs of the last time I was on the show when we talked about the Great American Songbook and which are the great songs that have been released since 1990. It was Cream from Diamonds and Pearls that I cited, which for me is like, it's a personal, that's my psych-up song. I listen to Cream before every big interview, every kind of scary moment that I'm going into, like any transition in my life, because it's this ridiculous, like, self-help, you are the best song. And, and so I always love that. This is- i I admit I'm listening to it in a purely selfish and didactic way when I listen to it, because I want to be told that I'm filthy cute. (laughs) But Cream is definitely one of mine. And then I was tweeting about this over the weekend, Julian. I think you saw it. But I have a very, very fond memory of being at a party in the early 90s and dancing to Little Red Corvette in a way that was calculated to impress a guy I liked across the room. 25 years later, that is the person I live with. (laughs) So thanks for that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Prince.
4: Oh, Yeah. (laughs)
1: Jody, what do you think?
4: Yeah, well, God, I don't know. Well, for one thing, let me just say, everybody, if you want to start with Prince, listen to Dirty Mind, 1999, Purple Rain, Sign of the Times. (laughs) Oh, just a light (laughs) load. Start with those. But anyway, in terms of songs, God, you know, there's just too many. Let me just name a couple of ballads because, you know, everyone's going to name, you know, their favorite dance jam, but I'll I'll name a couple of ballads. So, um, The Beautiful Ones from Purple Rain incredible like whisper to a scream ballad and also that is an example of his as an orchestrator just using synths and drum machines like listen to what he does it's like he is the he is 100% the Duke Ellington of synthesizers and drum machines on that song and on many others And then the other ballad is just, because this is kind of the no plus ultra for me of like soul bedroom jams. That's clearly what he set oh. out to do. And it's- You're and stealing my thunder. Adore. <laughs> the song. Oh, the song Jody. Adore. Am I right? Okay. Yeah. Or from no, time it's, to time. It's, one or, it's
1: one orgasmic soma after another.
5: From the first moment I saw you ooh, I knew you were the one That night I had to call you I was rapping to the sun
1: I mean, God damn, the man was a genius.
2: I'm going to feel like the biggest hack now just to say uh, uh, I want to be your lover, although it is a fantastic song.
1: Well, um, Jody, you're going to stick around and talk lemonade? Yes. Oh, and I should say, Dana is not leaving, are you, Dana? You're going to stick around and do plus?
0: I'm going to stick around for, for plus and endorsements, if I may.
1: Superb. Well, we hope we've given you some tiny solace in a uh, song list, in a playlist. Uh, we'll post, I'm sure, all of these song titles on our Facebook page at facebook.com culturefest. As everyone's been saying, goodnight, sweet prince. It was just way too soon. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have?
3: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored today by Bowl & Branch. You spend one-third of your life in bed, but without a good night's sleep. How can you be at your best during the two-thirds that you spend awake
1: and by the way, for some of us, those ratios are inverted. Just saying.
3: Lovely. Good to know. All right. So when so Steve spends two thirds of his day in bed now stipulated, I assume, are you someone who works from bed, Steve? Do you do like the laptop in bed thing? June, do you do the laptop in I bed do thing? Not.
2: I'm at my desk or nothing.
1: Yeah, no, I've definitely done like the reclining Roman act with a laptop many, many times.
3: All right. So whether your sheets help you while you work by making you sleep before you go to your desk or just by uh, emanating cotton smartness at Steve while he lounges in them, it's important to have good ones. Bolin Branch has reimagined sheets by cutting out the middleman, markups, and the chain store mentality to deliver luxury sheets for a fraction of the price you'd pay elsewhere. You can get their sheets in only one place. That's BollandBranch.com, where you know you're paying for quality and not department store overhead. Go to Bowl. That's B O L L and branch.com, and they'll let you try the sheets risk free for thirty days. This is one of my favorite things about Bowl and Branch because you can't tell. You can't tell when you buy from a catalog or in one of those plastic department store things how the sheets feel. Even if you do, if you unsnap the little plastic sheath and you you check out the feel which is uh, what they refer to it in the trade, um, or having, having good hand is actually mm. also something that they talk about. Even if a sheet has fine hand in the box, once you wash it, you never know exactly what it's going to be like on the bed. And with Bowlin Branch, you can give the sheets a full run-through and then decide if you like them. Go to bowlinbranch.com today for 20% off your entire order. Sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, everything, plus free shipping. That's bowlinbranch.com today for 20% off your entire order. Use the promo code CULTURE. All right, Steve, back to you.
1: All right, moving on. Take a ring off it. Creed occur, cry for help, howl of pain, a portrait of a woman betrayed, and a marriage may be redeemed. Anyway, on Saturday night, Beyoncé debuted an hour-long virtual album called Lemonade. It's a conceptual film. It's part Matthew Barney, part Terrence Malick. I don't know you pick. But very much all Beyoncé. She's in virtually every frame of it. It features a pop star going through several stages of grief associated with being cheated on by a spouse It is a supremely well-crafted bit of agit-pop with help from many many others Including Jack White, Kendrick Lamar, the Yaya Yaz, and a Somali-British poet named Warsan Shire I should say also the visual album is of course also an album album So why don't we start by listening to a clip
5: Something don't feel right, because it ain't right Especially coming up after midnight Like being walked all over lately, walked all over lately. I'd rather be crazy. They don't love you like I love you. Slow down, they don't love you like I love you. Back up, they don't love you like I love you. Step down, they don't love you like I love you. Can't you see there's no other man above you? What a wicked way to treat the girl that loves you.
3: I'm glad we started with that song, which is sort of the the fun, frolicsome, violent romp of jealousy, at least in the visual album. This is where uh, Beyonce wears an elaborate ruffled dress and swings a baseball bat with delight and glee and a sense of kind of joy as opposed to rage as she destroys a neighborhood while singing about whether it's worse to be jealous or crazy, which is a feeling that I think any woman scorned can relate to. And I think the emotional relatability of Feeling like you're worried about your man and whether he's stepping out on you is the most interesting tension in this work, right? It's a collection of in some ways, very relatable songs about romance, which is the thing that Beyonce has been making since forever. But in the context of the least relatable situation in the world, which is being one of the I don't know, two, three most famous couples in the world and having very public gossip about your husband's seeming infidelities and choosing to counter those not with denial or stony silence or kind of propaganda, which are modes we've seen Beyonce in around her private life before, but by kind of turning them directly into the art, or at least that's my read on it. I'm very curious to hear what you guys thought, though.
2: I know that probably a lot of people will say it's naive to reject a reading of it as an autobiographical response to something that's happened in her life, but I just don't feel that there's enough reason to do that. It's irresistible, sure, but I think it's it's disrespectful almost she she is it, it's not necessarily about her. people perform songs that are not necessarily about them all the time. And say in Hold Up, she is swinging that baseball bat at a whole bunch of cars. It's not just at one car. It's not just at one guy. I think that that signifies that she is representing a sort of a culture-wide anger, a sort of a, a heritage of anger and betrayal. And I choose not to see it as... As a story about her and Sean.
3: Come
4: on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that. No,
3: <laughs> I mean.
4: Yeah. No. Wait, can I get in here? Yeah. I look. I. I mean, I disagree with what June just said. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I mean, I think you know what Beyonce has done for years, and what um, is kind of the mode in which pop stars operate these days is this is this new kind of peekaboo confessional. Multimedia art, right? So, like the other texts we have to look at here are like Beyonce's Instagram feed and um, the ways she's represented herself and her relationship with Jay Z and other songs and other videos for, you know, fifteen years or whatever it is. And also, if you if you start to like listen to some of the lyrics, look at the images in this, uh, in this visual album she's calling it. Um, I mean, I think it's a it's it's uh, there are very clear references to the fact that jay Z stepped out on her, and also like just for what it 's worth that 's been the gossip around town and in the music industry for some years so but what I, what I do think is interesting in what June is saying is not only is beyonce th- especially um, on the visual album this this comes through less clearly if you 're just listening to the songs as songs as audio right but if you if you watch the film. She's connecting it to a broader political landscape, and there's all. And I think she does this in some incredibly interesting and compelling ways. First of all, of course, we should just talk about what these films look like. A lot of them feature these kind of phalanxes of black women of all different shades of black and brown, um, kind of arrayed in various tableaux. Um, but
2: on a, often on a kind of a porch that reads. As if there's a representation of the history of slavery in Right, uh, like
4: there's an antebellum s- no, there's southern setting. There's a lot of, sort of
3: Spanish moss, and right. it feels very of the south. Yeah,
4: all that stuff is incredibly interesting and complicated, and yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot to dig into there. I also think if you compare, for instance, a song like Don't Hurt Yourself, which may be the most is ferocious, stridently angry song on the record, there's a lyric about Malcolm X in the song, which just kind of glides past in the actual audio version but in the video version there's a stop time and there are shots of various black women who are not glamorous looking they look
2: right they're working class they're working women. class
4: black women and so there she's connecting this song which is in in the text of the song is so just a very explicitly to my ear about beyonce and the fact that her husband jay-z is fucking some other woman but she connects it to this, this broader panorama. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should listen to that song. One of the things I think you can hear in this song, Don't Hurt Yourself, to me, musically, what's most remarkable about this record is Beyonce's voice. She's really become quite a virtuoso. She's really ex- exploring the full range of her voice, her low end that we heard on Hold Up, her kind of really strong bluesy belting side. She raps in all kinds of different tones and timbres throughout the album, and it's really a remarkable performance. But anyway, let's listen to the song.
3: so interesting what she's doing there, right? So she part of her pitch to Jay-Z or some ostensible hypothetical cheater, June Mm -hmm, mm Pache June mm -hmm, um, is like, I'm special. I'm fucking Beyonce. Like, don't cheat on me. Cheat on some some rando but like don't you don't cheat on Beyonce right which is sort of the opposite of the message of the video album which is like I'm just I'm just another human woman who whose heart can be broken by intimate betrayal and I'm not just a woman who speaks universally for the experience of love as I maybe seemed to earlier in my pop career I'm connecting that specifically to black political history and black women and their experiences with love and marriage uh, and and I think I think you can zoom out from her specific experience or the specific experience of the protagonist to black women specifically in the way that the imagery of the film does, and also as a pop album and as the way her pop songs have for more than a decade now to anyone who's ever had their heart broken, um, and that's part of the power of it. But it, but that lyric specifically is super interesting because she's mm-hmm. claiming her specific, really unusual Beyoncé ness as like power and leverage within this relationship she's writing about and trying to negotiate at the same time as she's presenting her experience as universal and, and the way that toggles back and forth mm-hmm. through the songs and through the different versions of the album, I think is like the most complicated part to think through.
1: Yeah. yeah I totally agree. I think that that's the essence of it. Uh, it's really intense. It's very harrowing. It's something about it, Jody. I really, I really want you to get at this for me because I can't, but there's something to me that's utterly true about it. I'm not a fan of her, of her music. I quite dislike having the personal lives of anybody turn into a kind of public fact which me as an anonymous member of a mass audience i'm supposed to pay some sort of obeisance to i grew up in a in a republic because i didn't want a royal family i, I chose it from heaven um and uh, i betr- it betrays me by forcing you know, people who are better looking and richer on me uh, as someone, something that I have to reckon with. Uh, you know, I dislike the fact that pop music has moved way beyond the song to, as you say, this kind of meta text of Instagram and, um, you know, the gossip sheets and on and on and on. And on. Nonetheless, as I sat there watching it, I was floored. I was blown away. I mean, whatever you make of the precise presentation and there's no doubt in my mind that she had the experiences that she's now trying to represent in art and had the feelings that accompany those experiences, sexual betrayal and marital betrayal. And that seems to me just non non non-negotiably at the basis of what's happening. Do you think it has made for a good record? I mean, at, at the end of the day, Maybe it's not next year, but in ten years, people are either gonna to listen to the and they're either gonna to listen to this music as music or they're not gonna to listen to it at all. The drama surrounding it, or some might say melodrama surrounding it is not gonna carry it really far. Um, what do you make of it as a record?
4: Okay, well a few things there. Let me just go back. I just wanna say a couple things about about your broader point i mean you know to me this takes place and i'm certainly not the first person to say this 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 album takes its place in a lineage that in, includes for instance bob dylan's blood on the tracks certainly marvin Gaye's here my dear which was a explicitly confessional album about his divorce from barry Gordy, gordy's daughter mm-hmm. uh, you know well, i was just gonna say early early john lennon you early, know? early john lennon richard and linda thompson's shoot out the lights okay so uh, Steve uh, you're I just don't think that I, I don't think that this is anything new the fact that Beyonce and Jay-Z are more famous in the culture the celebrity culture now is in kind of overdrive in a way that it wasn't oh but celebrity but Jody celebrity culture is so
1: different I mean Linda and Richard Thompson were going through an Agonizing experience that they turned into art without ever. What about John? When Len- John Loco? And what about
4: John Lennon and Yoko
1: Ono and like their bed piece? But I mean, many people regard that as the most regrettable fact of his whole career is the fact that he liked sort of throwing dirty laundry out in front
4: of the uh, in front of the public. But. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, like, look, here's. I mean, the, I'm just noting that point. We could argue that whole thing. We really shouldn't go down that rabbit hole because everyone knows how that can will go down if you and I start <laughs> start heading there. But. But I, I would say this in terms of like, yeah, I, I agree. That I would say this isn't Beyonce's strongest album, album top to bottom musically. I, I think there's like five or six or seven songs that are amazing. And people will be playing those records 20 years from now and dancing to them and doing whatever to them. That said, I think it's, it, to me it's fascinating that it really holds together as a audiovisual text and I don't I say what's wrong with that. I mean, people have talked for years about the death of the album, and one thing that I think is fascinating here is the death of the album meet the visual album. The visual Beyonce has found a new way to make an album that's new and and compelling and it is a is a tour de force work of art in and of itself. You know what I mean? She's and to so to, for me to have this some sort of weird puritanical thing about like it has to just be an audio artifact. And that's no, the only way, you know, because that was, that. To, I mean, to me, well, to me, like, for instance, if you think about, like, wh- how how you interacted with a gatefold album cover in the past, well, Beyonce has given us a gatefold moving picture album cover, you know what I mean? I and
1: understand it, that, but one doesn't interact with a random gatefold album color, co- cover, one does it because of the content of the music, and and it may be that the balance has tipped very far in in the direction of... You know, kind of life as art and um, the audio visual. Well, but let me, it's well, let me def- still built upon music.
2: Let me defend that though, because I think that Beyonce, as you have regretted, Steve, does have now a larger role in the culture than as a mere musician. That's almost, almost an afterthought. But if, if her power to bring eyes to that piece of film is what gets people to watch that. My God, fantastic. Because there were some incredibly powerful images, very political images that I think the world is better for people, especially white people actually being exposed to. This was a black life, a black community, a black family. This is something that I think the more people see that, the better. And the people watched it because it's Beyonce. Yeah, if, and if I, that was an art film, but ten people would have
4: watched I it. I 100% agree, and mm-hmm. I also think it's really, it's really, it, you can't neglect the political dimension of it. And I don't think it's ultimately like you know the the you know Jay Z and Beyonce's relationship may be the kind of gateway drug or the the frame for the thing. But what's going on in that video is a lot more complicated. I think mm-hmm. it's really regrettable. Which, can I just, way, can I just say everything? I, can I just say I just I I feel like I it is too bad that there were just a bunch of white people sitting around here discussing <laughs> this. It's too bad there's not an African-American mm-hmm. or a black woman in the room because the most compelling writing that I've read on this thing has been from them because they frankly just simply are... Better exegetes—they're picking up more than I am capable of, or maybe all of us are capable of in this room, you know. And so, so for you to say, oh, blah blah blah, I don't know. and meanwhile, and just in terms of the the music wait, itself, wait 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 wait, 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 the music but is the music is extra- it's extraordinary music. I, so I don't understand what what is your what is your beef with? That, but the music. that
1: was all I was asking. I, so why why is it imputed to me that a I disliked the film, which I didn't. I thought it was enormously powerful. I think it, it the reconciliation is incredibly mawkish and self-serving. I, that has I agree flaws. with flaws. I mean, let that's what right. I want to get okay. You. I just thought that some of the music was, frankly, as music was somewhat banal. But I, mm. but I wasn't confident about that. I only heard it one and a half times. Some of it I thought was quite uh, moving and grabbing. I was
4: simply asking you to evaluate the music separate. Okay, forgive, for for, forgive me, Steve. You're right. Okay, you're right. I, 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 I stand corrected. And I, your response was exactly the same one that I had. That, a lot of, that some of the music was very powerful, some of it was banal. I didn't like the reconciliation. Like, you and I are oh, wait, 100% can, on the same page about this thing.
3: Can we... Okay, agreement, harmony, accord. Can we Can we get a little bit to to placing this film in the history of the way we've talked about Beyonce on this show as the sort of Tracy flick, a student-control freak who's incredibly technically adept at presenting the her she wants to present. uh, But there's something a little bit canned and robotic about it. I I think we talked about this most explicitly when we reviewed her previous collaboration with HBO. And I say collaboration because it was ostensibly a documentary about her. But it was one that she made and controlled in which she talked for an hour and said absolutely nothing (laughs) and revealed absolutely nothing. And, you know, whatever you anticipated that Lemonade might be from the hype surrounding it actually confessional or, you know, dramatization of confessionality about the specifics of her marriage was not top of the list of what I was anticipating. Um, And the specificity and the directness and the pain and the rawness of like, my top of the world, fuck all y'all marriage is actually broken and hurting and I'm not sure what the hell to do about it felt really surprising and raw to me. And then... The film takes a turn and suddenly with no voice from Jay-Z, she like asserts the reawakening of their marriage in a way that feels very unilateral and like the return of the propagandist to me. And I'm not saying they're about to get, I mean, who the mm-hmm. hell knows and who much—who knows how much of it is performance. But I couldn't decide whether this film was the moment when Beyonce let the mask fall and mm-hmm. decided she felt more comfortable like losing control of the narrative or whether it was like some kind of next level jujitsu master stroke domination of the Beyonce robot narrative. So Jody, as the person in the room who's actually met the lady, uh, what's your take?
4: No, I think you're right. I think you're right. I, um, you know, I too found the um, the kind of denouement unsatisfying. Look, the anger and the recriminations were just much more compelling on this record than the kind of like we're patching it up. and And she, she's, at her least powerful, I think, when she does a certain brand of inspirational pop and a certain brand of like post oprah self actualization speak i mean on the other hand, like that like you could read her entire uh body of work as that, and sometimes she does it great, single ladies is you know that too, but the kind of like you know we're gonna heal stuff is is unconvincing. I do, and in in terms of like the jujitsu move, yeah, I honestly don't know what to make it. I mean, to me, I just feel like the, and here, I guess I'm, I'm coming down on Steve's side, the conflation of like the success of her marriage as like qua marriage, like as an actual marriage that she lives in as a person whose name happens to be Beyonce. And like the marriage as, as this spectacle that millions consume. And it's kind of role In the narrative of this visual album, they're all, they're kind of inextricably wound up in a way that feels like, A, I wouldn't want to be a human being who's living my life that way, and sort of queasy making on that respect. B, like, wow, it's amazing that she kind of pulls this off and manages to like make art from this shit. And and C, though, it did, it does feel in the end a little bit cheap. Because, I mean, I don't know if you guys had that reaction, but well, when, suddenly, is... when Jay-Z suddenly appears, you know, three quarters of the way through the thing, and they're snuggling and cuddling and...
2: And reading Le Figaro, which just seemed like the weirdest thing of all. Well, yeah, they, you know, they were in Paris,
4: hanging pretty out pretty in a beautiful and beautiful... Uh-huh. <laughs> That's what their life is, right?
3: Uh-huh. <laughs> You did sort of wonder, like, where was Jay Z on Saturday night, and like, how much of it had he seen beforehand? How much of it was he a collaborator? How much of it was he blindsided? Like, you know, you 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 have these like dumb gossip questions because um, it seemed like a pretty fucking great way to get back at your husband well, you know, for I, running around on you.
4: Ben Williams, who's the editor of NewYorkMag.com, dot com, I think he he put this out on social media. Maybe may have been on his Facebook page, so that's kind of in the walled garden. So forgive me, Ben Williams, for for <laughs> making this public. But what he said, he was like, you know, was this something that was negotiated in their marital therapy? That uh, that beyond they, the the ma- she'd stay with him as long as she got to make an album where she just raked him over the motherfucking coals? Because it does feel, it's just such a crazy gambit. I mean, I don't know that a marriage could survive and thrive after that kind of like a public airing out.
3: Yeah, but. I mean, I guess that's part of what makes the end of it feel false and unsatisfying is you're like give the man like a minute or two to process <laughs> this 40 minutes of emotions mm-hmm. and for you two too but uh, I don't know I, it, the whole thing makes me like incredibly excited to see what she does with the rest of her career
4: and then just the other thing I wanted to say about the whole visual you know, album thing is it's, it's, it seems really interesting and weird to me that you know when people talk about the death of the album or the revival of the album the album's gone now the album's back they're almost <laughs> always talking about you know kind of rock and white dudes with guitars right and now here we have Beyonce who's in some ways like the the a singles artist par excellence you know she's like the the biggest pop star you know what i mean and now her and i sort of agree with Steve that it's not you know this is not a totally satisfying if you if you if you separate this out right if you un, if and you know download all the individual songs and listen to them as songs you're going to be like you're going to they're going to be found wanting some of them but as a single statement, it really holds together, especially with the visuals. So it's like, things have flipped. Now, now like, the, the, the quote-unquote, like, ticky-tacky pop star, right, is the great savior of the album form. So
3: I bought the album. I'll just say that right here. Yeah,
4: me too. <laughs>
1: All right, well, the album is called Lemonade. The audiovisual album is called Lemonade. I don't—Jody, it, it, is it still possible to find the audiovisual version
3: somewhere? You can buy it on iTunes, and I believe— I would be shocked if it were not also streaming on Tidal. <laughs> yeah, that's the other
4: angle here oh, is that Jay-Z personally is benef- profiting, from, profiting all this. from this. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, it's crazy. All right. Well, once again, we've, we all dove into the deep end of the uh, authenticity inauthentic- inauthenticity debate, which only drowns each of its participants in its own way. But um, why don't you join us um, in the deep end and um, tell us what you think of this. At Facebook.com slash CultureFest, Uh, surely you all have an opinion about Beyoncé, but if you don't, you surely have an opinion about us having these opinions about Beyoncé, so come uh, tell us what they are. And here, let me interject, Jody. you are going to disappear for a little bit, but then um, rejoin us after the third segment for endorsements and Slap Plus, I, I take it? Yep. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. Julia, what do we have?
2: June, Steve. Have you guys ever lost anything? Oh, yes. And I swear those things that I've lost haunt me more than all the many possessions that I still have my hands What's your saddest lost thing? An umbrella that I got by sending in tokens when I was a girl. And I had it for ages and ages and I carried it around for decades. And it was admittedly far too childish, but it was like one of my longest held possessions. And I just, you know, it went the way of all umbrellas.
3: Ugh. Also, I
2: never noticed that you pronounced umbrella
1: that way with like four syllables. <laughs> Ella,
3: <laughs> Ella. it was great. Uh, Steve, most tragic lost item?
1: Uh, still looking around for my self-respect. <laughs> um, That's gone. I can't think of one, but I will say I love the Elizabeth Bishop poem, The Art of Losing. Um, just losing farther, losing faster.
3: All right, Steve doesn't live on a material plane. Scratch that. Uh, I still remember. I think for my birthday in like second or third grade, my grandmother gave me some kind of cheap dime store perfume, uh, like, uh, like shoulders? Night Garden, or it was like sort of a knockoff-y one. It uh, smelled kind of like Lily of the Valley, and I literally had it for five days. Like I got it at Christmas, and then I took it on a post Christmas trip that we took to a family friend's house, and then I forgot to take it home, and I. I like still, I don't even, I hate perfume. This might
2: be like. And it would have gone. even if you'd kept it, it would have just been lost to the wind anyway. But this
3: like might be the moment that's why I like can't wear perfume. I sneeze at perfumes, (laughs) like, you know, any kind of aerosol perfume I can't deal with. So in any event, I mention all of these sad, lost, lonely things because the Slate Culture Gap Fest is sponsored today by something that will help bring back your umbrellas, your perfumes and your self-respect tracker. Technology has made everything smart, but losing stuff can still make you feel really stupid, and Tracker makes losing things a thing of the past. It's a coin-sized device that locates misplaced keys, wallets, bags, computers, anything you've attached it to, in seconds. Pair Tracker to your smartphone, attach it to anything, find its precise location with the tap of a button. Imagine if there were a Tracker on your umbrella. If only it could go back also to the the time when I lost it. That would be quite a magical... Yeah, they have not yet rolled out the time travel feature on Tracker, (laughs) sadly. Unfortunately, Me this too. product still only rewards people who have the foresight to attach Tracker to things. But if you are a perennial loser of things and you know who you are, you should try Tracker. They have a special offer for our listeners where they can get 40% off their first Tracker device. Go to thetracker.com right now and enter promo code CULTURE. Again, that's tracker.com promo code CULTURE.
1: All right, moving on. The girlfriend experience is on Starz Network. It's moody, kinky, fun, a half an hour drama with no comedic elements that I can find. I say that admiringly. It stars Riley Keough as a law student in Chicago. <laughs> I was waiting for you to laugh there, Julia. <sighs> I'm
5: stars smiling,
2: stars Riley.
1: North. It stars Riley Keough, that's funny. It stars Riley Keough as a law student in Chicago decides to try her hand at Upscale Sex for Money. Let's listen to a clip.
3: Just to set this up, so this is Christina heroine, on a treadmill next to her friend Avery who's already a sex worker learning about the job and what it entails.
6: I mean, it's not something that I want to make into a career, but I actually enjoy it. I, I like meeting new people. I like having sex. And I only do it a few times a month. Do you mean all your clients online? A few. This woman, Jacqueline, vets them for me and takes care of the bookings. Why do you want to meet her? I could introduce you if you want. Ah, just curious. OK. But there's a difference between being curious and actually following through. I'm aware of that. If you meet Jacqueline, she's going to want a book for you. You're smart and hot and funny. You just have to want to do it. I mean, I get off on it. I like the rush, all the attention, knowing he wants me. Then there's the money. And at the end of the day, if I don't get along with a client, I just move on. All I really have to do is listen and ask questions. And fuck. Yeah. And fuck.
2: I'm really curious to hear what you guys think of this show, because I have a kind of a contested relationship with it. I find it interesting. It's different. And I think different is something that's very compelling on television these days, especially on the kind of premium zone. It's not new that this is a show about sex work. Every premium cable channel has its prostitution show. But the tone of the show is really different. It's very cold. It's, there's no judgment, which is surprisingly rare on television. It's very arty. You know, there's, it's as much about the, the surfaces and the buildings as it is about the individuals. Christine, our hero, is, you know, she herself wonders if she is a sociopath, but actually she's just very detached, very transactional. But something about the way it works as television seems very different to me. Richard Brody in The New Yorker, who, you know, I just read to kind of enrage myself often, um, who in his defense of the film business, often seems to kind of attack television. He talked about it as kind of exhibiting the worst of television and almost corrupting uh, the two young filmmakers um, who made it. Amy Steinmetz, who's also an actress in the show, and Lodge Kerrigan. And to me that 's all part of what makes it watchable i 've only watched the first four episodes that have already aired on stars, but to me it 's something I just want to watch more of it to find out where it 's going because i don 't know where it 's going, and I love having that experience on television because it 's very rare
3: yeah this I, one thing to note is that the structures of the episodes and and this was highlighted in a bunch of reviews as both a plus and a minus. The episodes are sort of shapeless. A couple people recommend or cite it as a demerit that you should watch it as a binge, that it's sort of like the whole thing is a little bit samey and the experiences are slightly repetitive. The three episodes I've seen all start with a similar image of her sitting in this lobby where you're like, is this the, did I click the wrong one? Like (laughs) you you kind of have this sense of recurring, recursive experience that that, that is a little bit numbing, which seems not accidental given how careful the show is in its execution and its visuals. So that all feels distinctive and it's not uninteresting. And as an actress, she's very compelling in her affectlessness. Yeah. She's like a very, she's a blank object who's, you know, this whole show exists around her to mm-hmm. give you a sensible pleasure. Right. And you can't figure out what the fuck her deal is. Mm-hmm. Like you, the, the the show formally does something weird to you and your relationship with her. We should also pause briefly audio M dash here to note that she is Elvis Presley's granddaughter. And suddenly her magnetism takes on a different cast once you know that. Mm -hmm. Close M-dash. But the, like, my fundamental problem with this is that, like, I don't care that much about the problems of sex workers, particularly this unusually empowered kind. Like, as we all learned from Elliot Spitzer Mm -hmm. and many other incidents, like, this is a this is a world that exists and if you're making a stars show why not set a show in it but I wasn't – I didn't yet see the show using this as a fascinating metaphor. Noreen Malone mm-hmm. actually endorsed the show yeah. on on uh, the X Fest with you last week, June. And she posited that perhaps the show has something to say about hookup culture, about mm-hmm. the disposability mm-hmm. of sex generally for young yeah. women and their inability to connect with it. And, you know, if that's what sex is, like, why not be a high – like, I guess I can't figure out what this – like, that's yeah. an intriguing mm-hmm. idea. Like, yeah. it, it feels like the show has more ideas in it if you think about it through that lens, but then – but then what like what's the predicate of the sentence right yeah yeah,
1: yeah yeah i hadn't heard noreen say that but that's my response to the show it's what interests me and it, it, it if you are not gonna let me put it this way if you're not going to set a show about sex work in the uppermost you know strata in which it stratum in which it takes place then you're going to be making a show about it may include issues about the death of intimacy the effects of technology and commodification on intimacy and sexual intimacy. It may include those things, but it's going to be principally about the inherent degradation of someone with very little economic power trading their sexuality for money. And I think they have consciously wanted to make a film that kind of almost in a scientifically controlled way isolated the variables of intimacy, technology, commodification away from issues of social justice and, and inherent squalor that I think are utterly important to figuring out the issues around sex work. They just didn't want to make that one. It, the show it reminded me of June is In Treatment. Uh, yes. I like that it comes in under a half an hour. It's very smart. It's cold. It's about whether or not a certain kind of professional relationship is purely transactional, even though it is also touching upon the deepest core of your own being. You pay a therapist at the end of the you know uh, amount of time. Uh, that you've spent talking to them, pair prostitute at the end of the time that you spent fucking them. I mean, it, it they're very similar shows in that regard. That is such
3: an interesting metaphor, Steve. I hadn't made that connection, and I think you're totally right that there's the potential to be that kind of show, but I do think that... Treatment was a playwright's show. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if it was actually mm-hmm. written yeah, by a playwright, but intreat, Treatment was really about the power dynamic within those specific mm-hmm. verbal interchanges. And this yeah. one, perhaps because of the subject, is much more like a filmmaker thing where it's about these glossy surfaces. And so instead of being yes. able to watch and understand the dynamic... I mean, the sh- the show is very elliptical about pleasure. We mm-hmm. see her seeming to experience pleasure with these men. The friend, Avery, says she you know likes having sex but like really would sex with a stranger for money be like just actually technically physically very pleasurable like a a show that actually was kind of um less glamorous and a little nitty-gritty about the mechanics of that Mm -hmm. could be interesting terrain and this it kind of skates past it
1: all right well why don't we finish the segment by saying stick with it not stick with it june you're gonna watch it all the way to the end of season one
2: absolutely but i'm weirdly deciding not to binge i'm going to watch it every week and 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 force myself to to experience it that way
1: julia
3: i'm intrigued and i uh, wouldn't begrudge anybody who's got time to spare to watch it but it it's like 12th or 13th on my list of uh, series to catch up with uh some mm-hmm. of which i'm several seasons behind in so i sincerely doubt i will ever watch another minute of the show
1: <laughs> i'm I'm not quite with you or June. I will need someone that I respect to tell me that it takes on cumulative power, and it's really worth watching all the way through to the end. I do want to make one comment, though. She's I think she's quite good and you don't feel as though she has this part because of her grandfather. No. And and the at all. I mean she she she, she was not nepotized into this uh into this role at all.
3: No, she's no, quite... it just makes you wonder if charisma is hereditary. And I actually the, the performance actually reminds me a little bit of Dakota Johnson in the 50 Shades of Grey movie. There's a different like sort of sexual naifdom in there but the the young woman in the older man's strange sexualized world vibe i kind of want to see the buddy comedy between those two actresses because i was very impressed by both performances
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> green light i agree all right it's the girlfriend experience it's on stars it's um it stars riley Keough, and uh we'd love to know if you some of you are into it we'd love to know why i think we're kind of we're on the fence we could be nudged over to watching it to the end anyway facebook.com slash culture talk to us all right now's the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor julia turner what do we have
3: the State Culture Gab Fest is sponsored this week by Care.com. I certainly know as well as anybody that family care needs can be very unpredictable. Sick kids, emergency visits to the vet, these are all things that happen to families all the time. And if you are a busy person, they can throw your entire schedule out of whack when you least expect it. You often need an extra set of hands on demand. The process by which you find people to take care of the people and things in your life that need taken care of is not Optimized. You might even say it's broken and in need of disrupting a lot of word of mouth, a lot of message boards where you have to scroll back and back and back, a lot of email vetting of this and that. Um, it's it's hard and it takes time. And of course, you, you want to take the process seriously because often you're trusting the most cherished things slash humans in your life to the care of another person. Care.com enters into this ecosystem with an easy and reliable way to find care for everyone in the family when and where you need it. It's the largest digital marketplace for care with access to more than 8 million caregivers across 16 countries, so you're sure to find quality local caregivers that you need, including sitters and nannies, backup care, housekeepers, and more. One of the advantages here is that you can instantly get a huge list of names of people in your area, and then if you pay for their premium service, you can get them to run background checks on folks that you're interested in proceeding with. Right now, you can save 30% off a care.com premium membership and receive a $15 credit that you can use toward paying your caregiver when you go to care.com slash culture when you subscribe. That's
1: care.com slash culture. All right. Now is the moment in our program where we endorse Dane. Thank you for sticking around. What do you have?
0: Yes, uh, I couldn't not stick around. And I have, even though we've already talked so much Prince and dropped so many titles, I have one, uh, one place to send people if they want to see a clip of Prince's live performance, which is something that's very, very hard to find online. So if you've never been to one of his shows and want to get a sense of what he was like on stage, there's a beautiful piece on Slate by Samuel Adams about Sign of the Times, his concert documentary, which is apparently now impossible to find. You have to, like, order it from Uzbekistan in some unwatchable format. But a <laughs> clip of it has managed to land on, on Slate in this, in this great write-up by Samuel Adams of the a clip from The Sign of the Times. Um, so we'll include a link on the show page to this great piece by Sam Adams about The Sign of the Times concert documentary with a fabulous live clip.
1: Mm, wonderful. Um, Julia, what do you have?
3: Uh, I have sort of an unrelated to Prince or Beyonce musical endorsement, because why not? Uh, one of the things that got mentioned that I'd sort of forgotten about during the Prince coverage was the fact that Among the many songs he wrote that were covered by other artists, one of them is Nothing Compares to You, which he has a great recording of, but which of course was a smash hit for Sinead O'Connor. And in thinking through like music you listen to through which you project yourself into various scenes of falling in and out of love, like that Sinead O'Connor album. I do not want what I haven't got was definitely one of my earliest experiences in that regard. And great the, breakup album, ah, uh, so good. And I wanted to recommend a second non-Prince track from that, which is the last day of our acquaintance, which is just one of my all-time
4: favorite. I put that tracks. on. I put that on our '90s list the other day that was in the big your spiel I spat was out. so
3: fast jody. <laughs> but that song is
1: uh unstoppable
4: uh all right that's great and jody what did you bring us okay i'm gonna do what i always do when i visit you guys which is double dip but i'll do it quick <laughs> um okay so my first endorsement is i'm i'm writing a, a book about in theory writing a book <laughs> um, anyway so i've been reading a lot of books about both the 19th century and about transportation and the book that i've read which is the best in both categories is a book anybody familiar with a an historian called Wolfgang Schivelbusch
2: <laughs> I so want to be.
4: <laughs> Okay I know I, I knew that, that I was going to that, that I didn't get that response I, but honestly I he's own, a legendary uh, <laughs> cultural historian like truly
0: That's the best name it combines Dickens and Mozart Yeah it yeah. sounds like it
3: sounds like
4: Dickens for sure okay. So I only know early Schivelbusch <laughs> Go ahead This is early Schivelbusch actually so Wolfgang Schivelbusch is a is an, Okay. He's, a, he's an independent, he's an unaffiliated scholar. He was, he's not a, a university <laughs> professor, but he's, a, he's a, a, a very, very good historian. And this is a, a, um, a, apparently a legendary cultural history book in, in cultural studies. It's still assigned. It's still in print. It was published in 1977. It's called The Railway Journey. Um, the industrialization of, I think, space and time in the 19th century or something like that. And it's, so it's really, it's, it's about the experience, it's about of, you know, travel on steam locomotives in the 19th century and the way it changed culture, the way it changed the consciousness of people in Europe and the United States in the 19th century. He writes about things like the different... Ways that space and time were perceived by people because of the advent of the railroad, about different experience of landscape, the kind of panorama of travel, oh, the semiotics of like the compartment in a train. It's beautifully written. It's translated from the German, I think, but it's <laughs> Wolfgang Schivelbusch. Hello, it was
5: done in the original. But but,
4: but but it's like it's it's like a real pleasure to read. It's like super fun to read, and you there are, like insights on every page. So. Okay, and the other thing, I'm going to be real quick about this, but I was thinking, you know, in the wake of, of Prince's death and all the other, horror, you know, musical deaths we've experienced this year, I was thinking about the people, a very morbid thoughts about the people who are still alive, who would, like, when they, when they shuffle off this mortal choral, it will, like, you know, wrench us all Shakespeare. again. Okay, right. <laughs> there, there you go. Okay, and, uh, you know, there's, like, Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney, you know, Willie Nelson, Al Green, blah, blah, blah. But it occurred to me, you know who are still alive? are all the, like, all, except for Elvis Presley, like, the great founders of rock and roll. Little Richard is still with us. Jerry Mm -hmm. Lee Lewis. Mm -hmm. Fats Domino. These people are alive. And the greatest rocker of them all, Chuck Berry. And this is what I'm going to endorse, because Chuck Berry, whose music I've been revisiting in the last year, is the greatest American songwriter. He is, this, this is not something that's maybe said of him often, but it really is true. He's at least the best, the greatest American lyricist, with apologies to Bob Dylan and Prince and whoever else. His gifts for narrative, like, he's a great storyteller. He's funny. He's touching. He's deep. He's mythic with a light touch. He's witty as hell. He's like Mark, he's Mark Twain is what he is. He is so, such an important American artist. And I feel like he's almost not thought about anymore. And he's still with us. And when he dies, everyone will freak out and talk about how great Chuck Berry is. But he's still out there. In fact, as recently as, like, five years ago, he was playing gigs. So, I think
3: I've seen him in concert twice.
4: Wow. Whoa. I've never seen him in concert. But anyway, so Chuck Berry, The Promised Land, Brown Eyed, Handsome Man, Maybelline, No Particular Bo- Place to Go, Sweet, Sweet Little 16, No Money Down, Memphis, Nadine, Johnny Be Good, of course. <laughs> Nadine. Like, do me a favor, revisit mm-hmm. these songs, read the lyrics while you listen along, because he, he, he spits them out in like a headlong rush, you know what I mean? These songs barrel along. But he is a, just an amazing storyteller and wit and poet. Ah, fantastic. Um, June, what do you have?
2: So last Tuesday, as I was coming home from recording the Double X Gabfest, I got a text from someone in that way that you know, it was just someone's name, which is always a little scary, and it's, the text said "Victoria Wood." and I was like, "What, what?" And I looked, and indeed, Victoria Wood, the great British comedian, writer, actress, had died at only 62 cancer. And it was very affecting for me because she was an artist. A writer, a performer who I was so connected with, absolutely adored her work, and also felt a little isolating because she isn't known in America and never and kind of can't couldn't have translated to any other country because it was so specific and so British and so northern her way of writing. And so I kind of wanted I, I wrote a little thing trying to sort of communicate her importance and her her role and her style. Um, I th- and you can find lots of her sketches on YouTube, but it's a little hard to make sense of them because she was such a peculiar, uh, such a just such a very specific person from a very specific point of view. But you can find her songs. She was also a great songwriter, great comedic songwriter. But also, she could write because she was another woman. She could write the most sentimental songs too. And I am a person who has not cried in the wild since about 2005 (laughs) but Mm. there is a song of hers that I just just thinking about it I'm going to get reclaimed like it's a song uh, it's just like two minutes and it's about uh, it's from the point of view of an old man who comes home from the hospital after his wife of many decades has died And it is so upsetting. It's so sad, but it's amazing. And it's just two minutes and you can get a sense of her skills, such precision with words and such um, musicality. Not the world's greatest singer, but a beautiful piano player. Uh, So that particular song is called Like Any Old Day. Um, We'll have a link on the show page, but do not listen to it if you are not in a position where you're going to be able to cry because you will cry. I guarantee it.
1: Yeah, that's terrific. All right. Well, thank God for my famous brevity, because... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's only a six-hour
2: episode, it's fine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, apropos of uh, the birthday and death day of Shakespeare, um, I'm going to endorse um, Chimes at Midnight, which is Orson Welles' 1965 adaptation of bits, the Falstaff bits, from five separate Shakespeare plays, Henry IV's part one and two, Henry V, Merry Wives of Windsor, and Probably one other I can't remember, and uh, it's Wells kind of long past his trim fighting weight from um, a Citizen Kane, but somewhat at least before his um, you know total gone to seed years of Gallo wine hawking. But he's he's enormous. He has this deep rumbly voice. The movie was something of a chore to get made. I mean, almost an impossible you know a uh, herculean effort to get it made and then was something of a disappointment its reception was something of a disappointment it's now widely and rightly guarded as, regarded as a masterpiece but what makes it doubly powerful is that this is certainly long beyond the moment in wells's career where he understood that this was his relationship to hollywood that he'd become this punchline that he was massively overweight and that he was heading into a He could get into any office or any room in Hollywood in order to pitch something only to be told no over and over again even though everyone in the room knows that he has made the single greatest film in the history of filmmaking and he's become a pathetic fat old man, and to have built this kind of heartbreaking masterpiece around this moment of repudiation, because he himself, I believe in his professional life, was hearing over and over again, in effect, the words, I know thee not, old man. It's an incredibly powerful piece of cinema. It is really, it is eminently worth seeking out. So the Chimes, uh, Chimes at Midnight, starring, concocted by uh, Orson Welles. Anyway, um, Dana, thank you so much for coming in to join us.
0: Yeah, thanks for letting me Zoom back in.
1: Um, Jody, as always, just a total, total pleasure. Thank you. Um, Julia, thank you. Thanks, Steve. And June, thank you so much. It's always wonderful to have you as a sub.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our interns are Lizzie Fison and Lindsay Albrecht. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content poobah officer overlording all of the Panoply network. Um, the Slate Gapfest is part of the Panoply network. Check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner, Dana Stevens, Jody Rose, and June Thomas, I am Stephen Metcalf and I will see you next week.
5: Sometimes it snows in April Sometimes I feel so bad So bad Sometimes I win That life was never ending And all good things they say never last